The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We're going to finish the story that we began there. Oh, and and I did want to say also, you guys, unless you're on vacation, you have to be here next week, right? You're You're going to come back next week? Okay, here it is. Here's the book right here. We have it. I am so excited about it. I can't wait for you guys to read it and to experience it. And um, anyway, we're going to… And Brock and Bodie Taney. Now, some of you probably are familiar with them. Uh, they have, they're amazing writers, uh, and they've sold millions of copies of books, but I cannot wait to tell you the miraculous story of how God put us together, myself and Brock and Bodhi Taney, um, and you're going to get to meet them, uh, and then afterwards you can talk to them and get them to sign your books or whatever, which I think is worth its weight in gold because they are anointed, uh, gifted storytellers and how God brought us together uh, to put this story together. I'm so excited. I can't wait for you guys to see it, read it, get it, and be excited about it. So, Let's bow our heads and let's pray for the Lord to speak to us. Gracious Heavenly Father, may we hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us today. We thank you for the presence, hallelujah, of your Holy Spirit that is here in this place. You have anticipated our gathering and coming together in your name. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is power, there is glory, there is the kingdom of heaven. And Father, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for… it's a a place where the river of life is flowing and moving and lives are being changed. People are being touched, uh, ministered to, healed, transformed. So may we hear the still, small voice of the Spirit and what you have to say to us this day. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. By the way, while we were there in Israel, more healings, supernatural healings that took place, and then spiritual breakthroughs and and all the rest. It was awesome. So uh, Matthew chapter 11 And we're going to start off with verse uh, 20. Actually, I'm going to start, it says verse 21, but I'm going to start with verse 20. And by the way, the first, this is the first of the life lessons that we have in the message. If you are taking notes, you want to fill in the blank. Greater light brings greater responsibility. So Jesus says, and we're, we're kind of, you know, I know it's been a few weeks, I've been away, and, but we've been going through this teaching of Jesus to his disciples And now we're kind of coming to the culmination of that message. So in verse 20, then he, Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Now, Jesus said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, now Capernaum is the headquarters of Jesus' ministry for three and a half years. They are along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, they would have repented. God would not have even judged them. If they had seen the miracles, they would have believed and they would have repented. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So, um, experiencing, I, I put this at the beginning of your notes, experiencing the mighty uh, works of Jesus, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the healings, the deliverance, is to lead us to something. It is to lead us to one thing, repentance. Everybody say the word repentance. Repentance. Uh, repent. You know, th- this was the first message of John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is a Jewish phrase to mean, hello, the kingdom of heaven is as close as the hand in front of your face. Therefore, repent. Heaven has come to the earth. Therefore, repent. Repentance, in fact, that's the title of the message, the gateway of repentance. How many of you, let me ask you this morning, want to see the glory of God, you want to experience heaven, you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you want that river of life to flow in and through you, you want to experience the supernatural presence of God more and more in in your life. Let me see you raise your hand, okay? Okay, here's the doorway, here's the gateway, here is the key. Repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? It basically means to admit, it means to admit that you're a sinner. It means to agree with God, He's holy, and we're not. But, you know, repentance has gotten a bad rap, and and a lot of people are afraid of repentance, or it just seems like this. And I think that is a caricature that's been given. You know, the, the proverbial you know, kind of crazy prophet guy walking around with a sandwich board sign, repent, the end of the world is coming. It's this fearful, you know, kind of the end, it's all bad and gloomy and and all of that. That that is a caricature. That is not the, the biblical concept of repentance. Repentance means that you have exchanged a heart of stone. And I'm telling you, this God has a will for your life. God loves you. God has a wonderful, amazing, eternal, glorious plan for your life. If you listen to Him and follow Him, you will not be able to contain the joy that will be in your life when you follow Him. And the, and the way when you get more and more, you know, kind of just in love with the Lord and following Him, here's what happens to your heart. It gets softer and softer and softer and softer and more and more and more tender. You start feeling alive. You start feeling the Spirit. You start sensing even in the atmosphere around you what's going on and and the moving of the Spirit and the Word and all of that. That's following the Lord. On the other side, here's the devil. The devil hates your guts. He has a horrible plan for your life. He wants to use you and abuse you. And here's, if you listen to him, he dangles his little lures. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. I'll give you whatever you want. You just bow to me. Follow me. And here's what happens to your heart on that path. It gets harder and harder 
and harder, and you, you get, because you get beat up and bloodied up emotionally, spiritually, you start stiffening, you start hardening, you start becoming, your heart literally, uh, the end goal of the devil is for you to have a heart of stone where you can do anything, wound everybody and anybody, and most of all, wound yourself, and you don't even feel a thing. How many times are these crime shows where the guy goes out and he does this? You're like, oh my gosh, what? how could you be a human being and do that? Because they go, I didn't feel a thing. Wow, that's, that's the goal of the devil. They just got taken and their soul was stolen. They lost their humanity. So what Jesus is doing, Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Bethsaida is a little fishing village where Peter, Andrew, and Philip came from, they were fishermen. Uh, And Chorazin was just down the road a little bit on the Galilee, another little fishing village. And Capernaum was a little bit bigger village. That was Jesus' headquarters. He'd done all these mighty works. But Jesus rebukes them because it's getting close to the three years. They've seen miracle after miracle, heaven. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, heaven comes flowing through. When he touches people, they're healed, they're delivered but because they did not repent. And if you'll notice when he said, woe to you, notice every time Jesus said, woe to you, look in your Bible, it has an exclamation point, meaning he didn't just say it, but Jesus cried it out from a deep, guttural, it was very emotional. Jesus is emotional. That's another thing that'll happen. The softer your heart gets, I'm telling you, this is the way God made us and designed us, the more emotional that you will become. Um, it was beautiful, you know, on this trip, we were going to Israel, and there was uh, this one lady, she had come, she's battling, uh, a, a, you know, kind of cancer, and in fact, God had, has touched her in, in a powerful, supernatural way, and then her daughter came, and the daughter was with us, and she's on the trip, and she goes, basically, I didn't come because I'm all that religious, I, I've been to church, you know, and I did a little bit, but I basically came because my mom is really, you know, sick, and she wanted to go to Israel, and so I'll be her companion, take care of her. Walk. But that girl, by the end of the two weeks, she said, she was sharing with me and Vicky, and she goes, I, I cannot stop crying. I can't just, it just crying and crying. She goes, I had no idea. This is all real. Jesus is real. His spirit is real. She goes, what is happening to me? I said, you are, you are becoming a a human being that God always meant for you to be. This is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So Jesus emotionally says, woe to you. This word woe means judgment. But it also includes, what is the judgment of God? The judgment comes when we are in sorrow and grief, but we won't repent. So we are told in the New Testament, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want to say to you. You know, you're not alone. If you're a child of God, it's not just you on the inside. There's somebody else, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and you are both together inside all the time. And the Holy Spirit wants to bring you into a place where He wants to teach you uh, how to experience abundant life. So He will bring conviction to you. Do not be afraid of the ministry of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I think that we do it because we've had it wrongly done maybe by parents or authoritarians or even pastors and priests that have really, you know, kind of feel like they're pounding you and manipulating you and guilting you or whatever. 
Holy Spirit is very kind. He's very gentle. He's very patient. But he likes to point out, hey, don't quit doing this. You're killing yourself. You are grieving me because it's killing you. Stop. So repentance should become a way of life. In fact, when you really know what biblical repentance is, you want to get to repentance as fast as you can. Uh, you know, one of the great things about David, why is David, who is a big sinner, we all know his big famous sins, and he was bigger and larger than life, and he took on Goliath and the lion. But God looked at David and said, that man is a man after my own heart. What God was saying is there's something about David. I want all of humanity to emulate and to be like and to follow. And what was that? I believe that one characteristic that makes David a man after God's own heart, David, he was a big sinner, but he was a great repenter. Learn to repent often. Don't hold off and wait and make it a big deal. Let it be little repentances all along through your, in fact, let it become a way of life. It's the gateway. Just say, Lord, I, I'm convicted. I get it. I'm sorry. Done. And then you're forgiven if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just immediately when the Holy Spirit convicts you, just say, Lord, I'm sorry, and let repentance be a way of life. And daily it will lead you, you will be much lighter uh, in your spirit as you walk along. The principle here is that greater light brings greater responsibility. These cities and villages had had literally, they were chosen for heaven on earth to come upon them. And so the Lord, His presence, you know, they'd experienced all of this, and yet there was a deep need for repentance, a desperate need of repentance. Uh, I would say that, how many of you really are, you know, with me on, I'm praying for, I'm pressing into the Lord, as long as we're here. I want to see, you know, I want to see a revival. You guys want to see the pouring, outpouring? So in order for a revival to happen, there needs to come repentance. It's where a whole group of people and a whole generation uh, just comes to the place where they, they say, Lord, forgive us. We're sorry. And it's immediately taken care of. I believe that God's put his hand upon us. His hand is upon you. His hand is upon this church. I feel the hand of the Lord upon me. And he, his presence is becoming more and more real, more and more present, doing greater and mightier things. His word is becoming like a hot sword piercing our hearts. And that's good. And let it bring repentance because repentance brings revival. So let's go to the next life lesson. Uh, and this comes from the same passage there in verse 22. Jesus implies there are degrees of judgment. Hell is just not a, you know, one-stop shop. It's all the same for everybody. There are apparently, this is implied, degrees of judgment here in verse 22. I say to you, you know, he says, for if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, hello, Gentile cities, they would have repented a long time ago. These miracles were done in Jewish cities. You had the word. You knew what was coming. It had been predicted. It had been prophesied. And you got to see it and experience it. Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, your place will be worse. Tyre and Sidon came under judgment, 
but your place for eternity will be worse. Some will be judged more severely than others. Now, on the other hand, it is implied uh, on this side, but in other places in the Bible, that there are also degrees of glory in the heavenly realm. Not everything, we're not all just one big homogenous, uh, you know, we're all God's children. But you'll notice that there are degrees, for instance, one of the hints is rewards. Not everybody receives the same reward. Everybody gets salvation that's born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, but, but our works will go through a fire, and whatever remains, now if it's wood, hand, stubble, selfish, worldly, you know, you, whatever, it kind of gets burned up. It's not going into heaven. There's no reward. And some, their whole life will go, <laughs> and yet they're just standing there like a little crisp, and they just walk in, man, I made it, but they got no reward. But others will have gold and silver, and, the, and, and they will be rewarded. Okay, you were faithful with a little bit. I'm going to give you a lot more. Not only are there levels, apparently, of duties, responsibilities, experience, etc., but there seem to be levels even of intimacy, where Jesus had the 70, but then inside of that he had 12, and even inside of the 12, there were three, Peter, James, and John. The indication seems to be you can get as close as you want to get. The question is, how badly do you want to be close to Him? Are you satisfied with, oh, I'm good. You know, the, you know I'm in. I'm going to heaven. I got saved. Okay. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not satisfied with just that. I'm glad I'm saved. I thank God that I'm saved. But I am running. As Paul said, I press for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So I'm just telling you, that's me, that's my heart, that's my personal decision. And quite frankly, I want to exhort every single one of you that this is your home, this is your church, I happen to be the you know, shepherd here with you. I want to encourage all of us, let's run for everything we possibly can and get as close to Jesus as we can. Amen? So Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Jesus judges those three cities. Now, I want to show you a picture. There's a picture of Capernaum. Those are ruins. And by the way, you see the structure kind of in the back? It's a very odd structure. Um, it, it actually, you can see there's light. They, they built a structure on top of these ruins because in Chorazin, there's a Jewish home. And in this Jewish home, by the way, there in Capernaum, that goes all the way back to it was a home lived in by a Jewish family during the time of Jesus. It goes back 2,000 years. And guess what they found in this ancient 2,000-year-old Jewish home? They found symbols of believers. In other words, this home had been turned into a first-century church. It is believed that that home may have in fact been. You remember when Jesus came and, and then he went, Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and then Jesus came and healed her of the fever, and then she made a meal for Jesus and the early disciples. They believe that is the home, and they, they built a church on top of kind of the structure of all of that. But I want you to notice this. Cor or, uh, Capernaum has not been rebuilt. Here is the synagogue that is in Capernaum, 
And we know that Jesus taught in the synagogue. Now, what you're seeing there, this beautiful kind of white stone, goes back to about, I think, the third or fourth century. So that is not the synagogue that Jesus was in. However, when you're there, you can't quite see it in this picture, the foundation stones underneath that synagogue are black basalt stone, and they are the foundation. That's the synagogue, meaning they built that one on top of the original synagogue, so we know that is exactly where Jesus taught in the synagogue of Capernaum. But here's what's interesting. Everywhere you go throughout all of Israel, in modern Israel, they're rebuilding the ancient cities. All of these famous places that you know in the Bible, they're rebuilding them. They're renewing them. They've come alive. The dead have resurrected city after city after city after city. Even Jerusalem is a resurrected city. Guess what, though? Not Capernaum, not Bethsaida, and not Chorazin. They are ruins to this very moment right now. Why? Because Jesus pronounced woe and judgment upon them, and they have not been rebuilt. So I just say that because of the power of what Jesus says, Uh, and it's very, very powerful. Now, here's what's interesting then. Here is a quote uh, by a commentator, um, and his name is William Barclay. I couldn't remember his first name last night, just to show you how jet lag works. I was trying to think, what is his name, Barkley? What's his first name? And the first name that popped into my head was Charles Barkley. But then I went, no, that's a basketball player. So anyway, it was William Barkley. But anyway, William Barkley says this about those three cities. These cities, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these cities did not, they didn't, never attacked Jesus Christ, where in other places he was attacked. They did not drive him from their gates though he was driven from his hometown in Nazareth. They did not even seek to crucify him, which others did at the cross there in Jerusalem. All they did was simply disregard him. And he makes the comment, neglect can kill as much as persecution can. It's not enough just that, well, hey, I've never attacked Jesus, or I don't speak against him or the church or the Bible, you know, and, you know, but... If you neglect him, if you don't receive him and who he claimed to be and the power that he claimed to have, it's just as bad. In fact, it could be worse, especially if God has blessed you and given you great favor. So that's a good warning for all of us. All right, let's go to the next lesson here. The source of Jesus' great joy. This is the weirdest thing because from going to these pronouncements of woes and judgments, Jesus starts praying and immediately after the pronouncement of judgments, he, it's like he gets filled with the joy and the delight of the Spirit as he prays and talks to his Father. And the source of Jesus' great joy is his trust in the Father's plan. Now, this is very interesting. So, beginning of verse 25, and at that time, at what time? While Jesus is talking about judgment, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
I love this. In the midst of this section dealing with rejection and judgment, it's very enlightening to hear Jesus, how Jesus prays to His Father. Surprisingly, He starts with a word of delight, a word of thanksgiving to the Lord of heaven and earth. I thank you, God. Even though they didn't listen, even though they neglected, even though they did not acknowledge me or you, and you would think, wow, you could just fall into depression. That's his life goal. His life mission was he did all these miracles and the masses are not believing in him. But Jesus is not bothered by that. He says, Father, I thank you. It is your purpose. It is your plan. You are sovereign that you have hidden these things from the wise and the proud, but you have revealed them unto babies. And he took great joy in that. God is the sovereign Lord of all, and nothing, not even the rejection of his ministry by many of his own covenant people can stop the ultimate purpose of God's plan for messianic redemption. So here's what I want to say. Here's what you and I often do. So we're doing what God's called us to do as Jesus was doing what God was calling him to do. And then what happened to Jesus, there's no fruit. So maybe there's somebody here this morning, you're doing, yeah, I'm following the law. I'm doing the best. I'm seeking, I'm pressing in and I don't have anything to show for it. I don't have any fruit. Nobody's listening. Nobody's responding. And you kind of go down emotionally into the dumps. But Jesus doesn't do that. He shows us the way. He says, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about their rejection or their reaction. In fact, Father, you're in charge. You're on the throne. Those who are destined to be with you shall be with you, and nothing can thwart your purposes. And I want to say to you, nothing that is happening in your life or mine, circumstantially, if we looked at it and we let ourselves fall into it emotionally, we can go down to the pits and say, man, I'm doing everything right. I got nothing to show for it. Life is miserable. Wrong. God's plan moves ahead. God is on the throne. His will is being done. His blessings will come to you. You will be vindicated. You will be rewarded. You will be encouraged. We will be filled with the joy of the Lord. We don't need to go down to the dumps of despair. We can find delight in doing the will of God, just knowing I'm being obedient to the Lord. I'm, I'm just, and I'm happy in that. Can I hear an amen on that? Does that encourage anybody and speak to anybody? I know it does to me. In other words, I can't let my emotional basis be on what I see out here. Where I am emotionally, mentally, is in my intimacy with Christ. Nothing can take that from me. And the joy of the Lord really then becomes your strength. So it is ironic that part of God's plan actually includes the truth that He has concealed these things from the sophisticated and yet revealed them to ordinary people. Jesus finds absolute delight in the Father's plan because it pleased Him to do it this way. He's hidden it from those who often are, you know, called the experts. Now, this doesn't mean that God hides his plans from anyone. He doesn't hide his truth from anyone, but that 
the, the revelation of who Jesus is does not come in the usual worldly manner. The worldly manner is the world values experts, right? They want experts, not just you or what you think or your opinion or you're just an average guy. Let's listen to the experts. Who are, you know, what do they say? They've got advanced knowledge, advanced degrees. They'll tell us little people what it's really all about. And what, what Jesus is saying, that's not how God designed divine revelation. He goes, that's the way the world would do it. Okay, all the little people down here, and then the elite up here will tell you what to think and how to believe and whatever. Jesus bypassed that. that that's what, you know, they had in, they had in spades in Jerusalem. Uh, they had the experts, the Pharisees on the one hand, Sadducees on the other. And they were the experts, but they didn't get Jesus. They didn't understand him. They didn't realize, and yet the ordinary people saw. They were gifted. They were able to see. They were not experts, but God gave them divine revelation. Paul, now here's, here's the thing about Paul. Paul was brilliant, genius-level knowledge and understanding. And when he was living in his expertise as a Pharisee, he basically said, I'm, I'm like the top guy. I am it as a Pharisee. And yet he was blinded to God. And on the road to Damascus, God took that very knowledgeable expert and knocked him to the ground with his glory and blinded him. Literally, when, when Paul saw the glory of the resurrected Jesus, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He goes, who is it? Lord. He didn't know. He saw the light. You're the Lord, but who are you? This is Jesus of Nazareth. And from the time that Paul saw the resurrected glory of Jesus for three days, after that glory disappeared, he was physically blind. And then he has to go in to Damascus, and there's a man who prays for him that didn't want because Paul's persecuting the church and persecuting Christians. And the Lord speaks to him, and he says, I want you to pray for him. I'm going to touch him. I'm going to heal him. On the third day, Paul's sight was returned. Any coincidence there? Of course. God was showing him the glory of the resurrected one is the one you're now called to preach. And you will reach the experts, and you will break their pride, and you will show them the way, the truth, and the life. And so Paul could deal with the intellectuals, but he could also talk to the common people. And he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and I'd like us to read this out loud together. He, he wrote a letter to the really smart people that lived in ancient Corinth, Greece. Let's read it. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Man, that is powerful. This is, this, is the, this is the wisdom of the creator of the universe. He says, 
I'm going to send my eternal son from heaven to the earth in a human body through an incarnation. He's going to show them what I meant man, Adam, and Eve to be from the beginning. He'll be the only one who actually lives perfectly and in love and joy and peace. And then, and he's the only perfect human being that ever lived. He never sinned. He never hurt one person. He never broke any, not even one law. And all he did was when he opened his mouth, heaven came out. When he touched people, the glory and the kingdom of heaven would come out. And then what do we do with the only perfect human being there ever was? We crucified him. We nailed him to the cross. And then he was buried and then he was resurrected. God says, that's my power, that's my presence, and that's my wisdom. So I love this. Look at uh, verse 27, because Jesus here makes a staggering statement. Um, And I just, I love this. It's absolutely incredible. In verse 27, he says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So I want to make uh, four statements from this verse that you can help, you know, write and fill in the blank very quickly that only he, Jesus, has a true relationship with God the Father, and that the Father can only be known through the Son. Hear me. Jesus is telling not just his generation, but all generations, all of humanity, not only the seven billion on the planet now, but going all the way back to the beginning of human history, the creator of the universe, I and my Father are one, and I'm the only one who knows him and can share him with you. Number two, there are no secrets between the Father and the Son. They're intimate, they're close, they're eternal, their relationship goes forever, and they hold nothing back from one another. The love and the devotion, I love this. If you look at the Father, God, in the Bible, he's always, he can't stop talking about his son. Have you seen my son? I love my son. My beloved son, listen to him. A father boasting of his son. And then you come to Jesus, and he goes, have you you talked to my dad? Have you heard my father? I go where he tells me to go. I say what he tells me to say. Have you seen my father? I want to tell you about my father. He's boasting in the father. And then the Holy Spirit, he didn't talk about himself or his gifts or power. He's just lifting and glorifying the son, Jesus Christ. So there are no secrets between the father and the son. No one knows the father as well. As the Son. And finally, the Son chooses to reveal the Father to whom He chooses. That is, that's huge. Jesus says, I get to pick who I will reveal the Father to. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning and you know who He is, that He's the Son of God, and you believe that he has the power he claimed to have and that he rose from the dead on the third day and that he sits at the right hand of the Father, if you know that and you're born again, you didn't figure that out because you're so cool, spiritual, or cute. It was given to you. You were chosen, and it was revealed, and and it's a gift. Is it not a precious gift? It is an amazingly divine, precious gift. His own divine origin is emphasized by Jesus himself, It is the Son who fully knows the Father, and the Father has said, Son, you can reveal me to whomever you wish. And so then we close with, finally, Jesus' invitation to come to Him for rest. This is one of the most beautiful passages, a couple of verses in the entire Bible, 
And I, I want you to notice it follows one of the greatest judgments that he ever delivered to those cities. But beginning verse 28, he finishes this message with this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find shalom for your souls. I know that's a Greek word, but in Jesus' language, the word for rest or peace is shalom. Would everybody say shalom? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, you may not know this, but uh, the Jewish people who had been given the law, Mount Sinai, they said, we want to wear the yoke of the law upon our shoulders. It is the gift that God's given to us to show us how to live, which is true. But unfortunately, no one was able to actually live under the law. We just kept breaking it. It was to point out our sin. So it became this heavy burden to follow the law and all the statutes and everything else. There's only one human being that ever actually lived the law, and that's Jesus. Jesus is like the whole Torah put into a human being and lived out on a daily basis. So when he says, take my yoke upon you, he personalizes and says this. Don't, not just uh, the, the written Torah, but the living word of Torah, me. Take me upon yourself. And I, because he is so gentle, he's so patient, he's so loving, he is so kind, he, he shows you because he convicts you, and then you repent, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't know that, okay. And he opens your eyes, oh, so that's the way I can find joy and happiness. So, yeah, that's what I want. And you start doing that, and once he shows you this is the way to experience life, joy, and peace, he then gives you the power to do it and to live it. And then you get relationship and intimacy, and he goes, oh, man, I'm so excited. You're getting it. You're being filled with my light and my love and my glory. Now let's go talk to dad because he wants to talk to you and get to know you're just like me. And then the Holy Spirit that's going to be in you, and, and you just walk in all of this. Jesus' invitation is, come to me. And I love that. That's all he's asking. Take Jesus, the person of Jesus, the relationship with Jesus. It's the easiest yoke. It's the gentlest Thing to put upon your shoulders, the presence of Jesus by His Holy Spirit in us, with us, and through us all the way into eternity. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.